0: Teaching Children, Charles Haddon Spurgeon Come ye children, hearken unto me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Psalm 34, verse 11 It is a singular thing that good men frequently discover their duty when they are placed in most humiliating positions. Never in David's life was he in a worse plight than that which suggested this psalm. It is, as you read at the commencement, a psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he departed. David was carried before King Achish, the Abimelech of Philistia, and in order to make his escape he pretended to be mad, accompanying that profession with certain very degrading symptoms which might well seem to betoken his insanity. He was driven from the palace and, as usual, when such men are in the street, a number of children assembled round him. In after days, when he sang songs of praise to God, recollecting how he had become the laughing stock of little children, he seemed to say, Ah, I have lowered myself to the estimation of, in the estimation of generations that shall live after me by my folly in the streets before the children. Now I will endeavor to undo the mischief. Come, ye children, hearken unto me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Very possibly, if David had never been in such a position, he would never have thought of this duty. For I do not discover in any other psalm that David said, Come, ye children, hearken unto me. He had the cares of his cities, his provinces, and his nation pressing upon him, and was but little attentive to the education of his youth. But here, being brought into the meanest position which man could possibly occupy, having become as one bereft of reason, he recollects his duty. The exalted or prosperous Christian is not always mindful of the lambs. That duty generally devolves on Peter's, whose confidence of pride have been crushed, and who rejoice thus practically to answer the question, Lovest thou me? Departing, however, from this thought, let me address myself to the text. Come ye children, hearken unto me, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. First I shall give you one doctrine. Secondly, I shall give you two encouragements. Thirdly, three admonitions. Fourthly, four instructions. Fifthly, I will give you five subjects for children, all taken from the text. First, one doctrine. Come ye children, hearken unto me, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. The doctrine is that children are capable of being taught the fear of the Lord. Men are generally wisest after they have been the most foolish. David had been extremely foolish. And now he became extremely wise, and being so, it was not likely that he would utter foolish sentiments or give directions such as would be dictated by a weak mind. We have heard it said by some that children cannot understand the great mysteries of religion. We even know some Sabbath school teachers who cautiously avoid mentioning the great doctrines of the gospel because they think the children are not prepared to receive them. Alas! The same mistake has crept into the pulpit, for it is currently believed among a certain class of preachers that many of the doctrines of the word of God, although true, are not fit to be taught to the people, since they would pervert them to their own destruction. Away with such priestcraft. Whatever my God has revealed ought to be preached. Whatever he has revealed, if I am not capable of understanding it, I will still believe and preach it. I do hold that there is no doctrine of the word of God which a child, if he be capable of salvation, is not capable of receiving. I would have children taught all the great doctrines of truth without a solitary exception, that they may in their after days hold fast by them. I can bear witness that children can understand the scriptures, for I am sure that when but a child I could have discussed many a knotty point of controversial theology, having heard both sides of the question freely stated among my father's circle of friends. In fact, children are capable of understanding some things in early life which we hardly understand afterward. Children have eminently a simplicity of faith. Simplicity is akin to the highest knowledge. Indeed, we know not that there is much distinction between the simplicity of a child and the genius of the profoundest mind. He who receives things simply as a child will often have ideas which the man who is prone to make a syllogism of everything will never attain unto. If ye wish... To know whether children can be taught, I point you to many in our churches and in pious families, not prodigies, but such as we frequently see, Timothys and Samuels and little girls too, who have early come to know a Savior's love. As soon as a child is capable of de- being damned, it is capable of being saved. As soon as a child can sin, the child can, if God's grace assist it, believe and receive the word of God. As soon as children can learn evil, be assured that they are competent under the teaching of the Holy Ghost to learn good. Never go to your class with the thought that the children cannot comprehend you, for if you do not make them understand, it is because you do not understand yourselves. If you do not teach children what you wish, it is because you are not fit for the task. You should find out simpler words more fitted for their capacity, and then you would discover that it was not the fault of the child, but the fault of the teacher if he did not learn. I hold that children are capable of salvation. He who in divine sovereignty reclaimeth the gray-haired sinner from the error of his ways can turn a little child from his youthful follies. He who in the eleventh hour finding some standing idle in the marketplace and sending, sendeth them into the vineyard can call men at the dawning of the day to labor for him. He who can change the course of a river when it has rolled onward and become a mighty flood can control a newborn rivulet leaping from its cradle fountain and make it run in the channel he desireth. He can do all things. He can work upon children's hearts as he pleases for all are under his control. I will not stay to establish the doctrine because I do not consider that any of you are so foolish as to doubt it. But although you believe it I hear many of you do not expect to hear of children being saved. Throughout the churches I have noticed a kind of abhorrence of anything like early childlike piety we are frightened at the idea of a little boy loving Christ. And if we hear of a little girl following the Savior, we say it is a youthful fancy, an early impression that will die away. My dear friends, I beseech you, never treat infant piety with suspicion. It is a tender plant. Don't brush it too hard. I heard a tale some time ago, which I believe to be perfectly authentic. A dear little girl, some five or six years old, a true lover of Jesus, requested of her mother that she might join, the truth, might join the church. The mother told her she was too young. The poor little thing was grieved exceedingly, and after a while, the mother, who saw that piety was in her heart, spoke to the minister on the subject. The minister talked to the child and said to the mother, I am thoroughly convinced of her piety, but I cannot take her into the church. She is too young. When the child heard that, a strange gloom passed over her face. And the next morning when her mother went to her little bed, she lay with a pearly tear or two on each eye, dead for very grief. Her heart was broken because she could not follow her Savior and do as he had bidden her. I would not have murdered that child for a world. Take care how you treat young piety. Be tender of it. Believe that children can be saved as much as yourselves. When you see the young heart brought to the Savior, don't stand by and speak harshly, mistrusting everything. It is better sometimes to be deceived than to be the means of ruining one. God sent to his people a more firm belief that little buds of grace are worthy of all care. Now secondly, I will give you two encouragements, both of which you will find in the text. The first encouragement is that of pious example. David said, Come ye children, hearken unto me, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. You are not ashamed to tread in the footsteps of David, are you? You will not object to follow the example of one who was first eminently holy and then eminently great? Shall the shepherd boy, the giant slayer, the psalmist of Israel, and the monarch tread in footsteps which you are too proud to follow? Ah, no. You will be happy, I am sure, to be as David was. If you want, however, a higher example even than that of David, hear the son of David, while from his lips the sweet words flow, Suffer, little children, to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. I am sure it would encourage you if you always thought of these examples. You teach children. You are not dishonored by it. Some say you are a mere Sabbath school teacher, but you are a noble personage holding an honorable office and having illustrious predecessors. We love to see persons of some standing in society take an interest in Sabbath schools. One great fault in many of our churches is that the children are left to the young people to take care of. The older members who have more wisdom taking but very little notice of them, and very often the wealthier members of the church stand aside as if the teaching of the poor were not, as indeed it is, the special business of the rich. I hope for the day when the mighty men of Israel shall be found helping in this great warfare against the enemy. In the United States we have heard of presidents, of judges, men of Congress, and persons in the highest positions, not condescending, for I scorn to use such a term, but honoring themselves by teaching little children in Sabbath schools. He who teaches a class in a Sabbath school has earned a good degree. I had rather received the title of SST than MA, BA, or any other honor that ever was conferred. Let me beg of you then to take heart, because your duties are so honorable. Let the royal example of David, let the noble, the godlike example of Jesus Christ, inspire you with fresh diligence and increasing ardor, with confident and enduring perseverance, still to go on in your mighty work, saying as David did, Come ye children, hearken unto me, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. The second encouragement I will give is the encouragement of great success. David said, Come ye children, hearken unto me. He did not add, Perhaps I will teach you the fear of the Lord, but I will teach you. He had success, or if he had not, others have. The success of Sabbath schools. If I begin to speak of that, I shall have an endless theme. Therefore, I will not commence. Many volumes might be written on it, and then, when all were written, we might say, I suppose, that even the world itself could not contain all that might be written. Up yonder where the starry hosts perpetually sing his high praise, up where the white-robed throng continually cast their crowns before his feet, we may behold the success of Sabbath schools, There, too, where infant millions assemble Sabbath after Sabbath to sing, Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, we see with joy the Sabbath, the success of Sabbath schools. And up here in almost every pulpit of our land, and there in the pews where the deacons sit, and godly members join in worship, there is the success of Sabbath schools. And far away across yonder broad ocean in the islets of the south, In lands where those dwell who bow before blocks of wood and stone, there are missionaries saved by Sabbath schools, whose thousands, redeemed by their labors, contribute to swell the mighty stream of the tremendous, unexampled, incalculable, I had almost said infinite, success of Sabbath school instruction. Go on, go on, so much has been done, more shall be done. Let all your past victories inflame you with ardor. that the remembrance of campaigns of triumph and of battlefields won for your Savior in the realms of salvation and peace be your encouragement for fresh duty. Now, thirdly, I will give you three admonitions. The first is recollect whom you are teaching. Come ye children. I think we ought always to have respect to our audience, not that we need care that we are preaching to Mr. So-and-so, Sir William, this or my Lord, that. Because in God's sight, that is a trifle. But we are to remember that we are preaching to men and women who have souls, so that we ought not to occupy their time by things that are not worth their hearing. But when you teach in Sabbath schools, you are, if it be possible, in a more responsible position, in a more responsible situation, even than a minister. He preaches to grown up people, men of judgment, who, if they do not like what he preaches, have the option of going somewhere else. You teach children who have no option to go elsewhere. If you teach the child wrongly, he believes you. If you teach him heresies, he will receive them. What you teach him now, he will never forget. You are not sowing as some say on virgin soil, for it has long been occupied by the devil. But you are sowing on a soil more fertile now than it ever will be. That will produce fruit now far better than it will do in after days. You are sowing on a young heart, and what you sow will be pretty sure to abide there, especially if you teach evil, for that will never be forgotten. You are beginning with the child. Take care what you do with him. Don't spoil him. Many a child has been treated like the Indian children who have copper plates put upon their foreheads so that they may never grow. There are many who know themselves to be simpletons now, just because those who had the care of them when young gave them no opportunities of getting knowledge, so that when they became old they carried... They care nothing about it. Have a care what you are after. You are teaching children. Mind what you are doing. Put poison in the spring and it will impregnate the whole stream. Take care what you are after, sir. You are twisting the sapling and the old oak will be bent thereby. Have a care. It is a child's soul you are tampering with if you are tampering at all. It is a child's soul you are preparing for eternity if God is with you. I give you a solemn admonition on every child's behalf. Surely, if it be treachery to administer poison to the dying, it must be far more criminal to give poison to the young life. If it be evil to mislead mislead the gray-headed age, it must be far more so to turn aside the young heart to a road of error in which he may forever walk. Ah, it is a solemn admonition. You are teaching children. The second is recollect that you are teaching for God. Come ye children, hearken unto me, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. If you as teachers were only assembled to teach geography, I am sure I should not interfere if you were to tell the children that the North Pole was close to the equator. If you were to say that the extremity of South America verged hard by the coast of Europe, I would smile at your error and perhaps should even retain it as a joke, if I heard you assure them that England was in the middle of Africa. But you are not teaching geography or astronomy, nor are you teaching for business or for the world but you are teaching them to the best of your ability for God you say to them children you come here to be taught the word of God you come here if it be possible that we may be the means of saving your souls have a care what you are after when you pretend to be teaching them for God wound the child's hand if you like but for God's sake don't touch his heart say what you like about temporal matters but I beseech you in spiritual matters take care how you lead him Oh, be careful that it is the truth which you inculcate, and only that. And now, how solemn your work becomes. He who is doing a work for himself, let him do it as he likes. But he who is laboring for another, let him take care how he does his work. He who is now employed by a monarch, let him beware how he performs his duty. But he who labors for God, let him tremble, lest he does his work ill. Remember, you are laboring for God. I say so because you profess to be. Alas, many, I fear, even among you, are far from having this view of the matter. The third admonition is, remember that your children want teaching. The text implies that when it says, Come ye children, hearken unto me, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. That makes your work all the more solemn. If children did not want teaching, I would not so be, be so extremely anxious that you should teach them right. For works of supererogation works that are not necessary. Men may do as they please. But here the work is necessary. Your child wants teaching. He was born in iniquity. In sin did his mother conceive him. He has an evil heart. He knows not God and he never will unless he is taught. He is not like some ground of which we have heard that hath good seed lying hidden in its very bowels. But instead thereof he hath evil seed within his heart. God can place good seed there you profess to be his instruments to scatter seed upon that child's heart. Remember, if that seed be not sown, he will be lost forever. His life will be a life of alienation from God, and at his death, everlasting fire must be his portion. Careful, then, how you teach, remembering the urgent necessity of the case. This is not a house on fire needing your assistance at the engine, nor is it a wreck at sea, demanding your oar in the lifeboat. But it is a deathless spirit calling aloud to you, come over and help us. I beseech you, teach the fear of the Lord, and that only. Be very anxious to say, and say truly, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. That brings me in the fourth place to four instructions, and they are all in the text. The first is, get the children to come to your school. Come, ye children. The great complaint with some is that they cannot obtain children. Go and get them to come. In London we are having a canvas, and that is a good idea. And you ought to have a canvas of every country village and of every market town, and get every child you can. For David says, come, you children. My advice, then, is get the children to come and do anything to affect it. Don't bribe them. That is the only plan that we object to. It is only adopted in schools of the lowest order, schools of so many class, that even the fathers and mothers of the children have too much sense to send them there. But then Farmer Brown won't employ them, or the squire will turn them out of their situations, or if the children don't go to the school on Sundays, they shall not go on weekdays. Oh, that beggarly trick of bribing. I wish there were an end of it. It only shows the weakness and degradation and abomination of a sect that cannot succeed without using so mean a system. But except that, don't be very particular how you get the children to school. Why, if I could not get people to come to my place by preaching in a black coat, I would have regimentals tomorrow. I would have a congregation somehow. Better do strange things than have an empty chapel or an empty schoolroom. When I was in Scotland, we sent a bellman around a village to secure an audience, and the means was eminently successful. Spare no means. Go and get the children in. I have known ministers who have gone out in the streets on the Sunday afternoon and talked to the children who were playing in the streets so as to induce them to come to the school. This is what an earnest teacher will do. I say, John, he will say, come into our school. You cannot think what a nice school it is. And he gets the children in, and in his kind, winning manner, he tells them some stories and anecdotes about girls and boys and so on. And in this way, the school is built. "'Go and catch them anyhow. "'There is no law against it. "'You may do what you like in battle. "'All is fair against the devil. "'My first instruction then is, "'Get children and get them anyhow. "'The next is, "'Get the children to love you, "'if you can. "'That also is in the text. "'Come, ye children, "'hearken unto me. "'You know how we used to be taught "'in the dame school? "'How we stood up with our hands behind us "'to re- repeat our lessons? "'That was not David's plan. "'Come, ye children, "'come here and sit upon my knees. "'Oh,' thinks the child, "'how nice to have such a teacher.' A teacher that will let me come near him. A teacher that does not say, Go, but come. The fault of many teachers is that they do not get their children near them, but endeavor to foster a kind of awful respect. Before you can teach children, you must get the silver key of kindness to unlock their hearts and get their attention. Say, Come ye, children. We have known some good men who were subjects of abhorrence to children. You remember the story of two little boys who were one day asked if they would like to go to heaven? And who much to their teachers? astonishment said they really should not. When they were asked why not, one of them said, I should not like to go to heaven because Grandpa would be there and would be sure to say, Get along, boys, get along, boys. I should not like to be along with Grandpa. If a boy has a teacher who always wears a sour look but who talks to him about Jesus, what does the boy think? I wonder whether Jesus was like you. If he was, I shouldn't like him much. Then there is another teacher who, if he is provoked ever so little, boxes the child's ears and at the same time teaches him that he should forgive others and how kind he ought to be. Well, thinks the child, that is no doubt very pretty, but my teacher does not show me how to do it. If you drive a boy from you, your power is gone, for you won't be able to teach him anything. It is of no avail to attempt teaching those who do not love you. Try and make them love you, and then they will learn anything from you. The next instruction is, get the children's attention. That is in the text, come ye children, hearken unto me. If they do not hearken, you may talk, but you will speak to no purpose whatsoever. If they do not listen, you go through your labors as an unmeaning drudgery to yourselves and your scholars, too. You can do nothing without securing their attention. That is just what I cannot do, says one. Well, that depends upon yourself. If you give them something worth attending to, they will be sure to attend. Give them something worth hearing, and they will certainly hearken. This rule may not be universal, but it is very nearly so. Don't forget to give them a few anecdotes. Anecdotes are very much objected to by critics of sermons who say they ought not to be used in the pulpit. But some of us know better than that. We know what will wake a congregation up. We can speak from experience that a few anecdotes here and there are first-rate things to get the attention of persons who don't, won't listen to dry doctrine. Do ye try and learn as many anecdotes in the week as possible? Wherever you go, if you are really a good teacher, you can always find something to make into a tale to tell your children. Then, when your class gets dull and you cannot get their attention, say to them, Do you know the five bells? And then they all open their eyes directly, if there is such a place in the village. Or, do you know the turning against the red lion? And then tell them something they, you may have heard or read, just to secure their attention. A dear child once said, Father, I like to hear Mr. So-and-so preach because he puts some likes into a sermon, like this and like that. Yes, children always love those likes. Make parables, pictures, figures for them, and you will always get on. I am sure if I were a boy listening to some of you, unless you told me a tale now and then, you would as often see the back of my head as my face." And I don't know if I sat in a hot schoolroom, but that my head would nod and I should go to sleep, or be playing with Tom on my left, and do as many strange things as the rest, if you did not strive to interest me. Remember to make them hearken. The fourth admonition is, have a care of what you teach the children. Come, ye children, hearken unto me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Not to worry you, however, I will only hint at that and pass on. In the fifth place to give you five Sunday school lessons, five subjects to teach your children, and these you will find in the verses following the text. Come, ye children, hearken unto me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. The first thing to teach is morality. What man is he that desireth life and loveth many days, that he may see good? Keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The second is godliness and a constant belief in God's oversight. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. The third thing is the evil of sin. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth and delivereth them out of all their troubles. The fourth thing is the necessity of a broken heart. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. The fifth thing is the inestimable blessedness of being a child of God. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. He keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. The Lord redeemeth the soul of his servants, and none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. I have given you these divisions, and now let me refer to them one by one. Here, then, is a model lesson for you. Come, ye children, hearken unto me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. David commences with an interrogative. What man is he that desireth life and loveth many days? The children like that thought. They would like to live to be old. With this preface, he commences and teaches them morality. Keep thy tongue from evil, and thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Now, we never teach morality as the way to salvation. God forbid that we should ever mix up man's works in any way with the road to heaven, for we are saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. But yet we teach morality while we teach spirituality. And I have always found that the gospel produces the best morality in the world. I would have the Sunday school teacher take care of the morals of the boys and girls speaking to them very particularly of those sins which are most common to youth. He may honestly and conveniently say many things to his children which no one else can say, especially when reminding them of the sin of lying, so common with children, the sin of little petty thefts, of disobedience to parents, of breaking the Sabbath day. I would have the teacher be very particular in mentioning these things one by one, for it is of little avail talking to them about sins in the Mass. You must take them one by one, just as David did. First look after the tongue. Keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. Then look after the whole conduct. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. If the child's soul is not saved by other parts of the teaching, this part may have a beneficial effect upon his life. And so far, so good. Morality, however, is comparatively a small thing. The best part of what you teach is godliness, a constant belief in God. I said not religion, but godliness. Many people are religious without being godly. Many have all the externals of godliness, all the outside of piety, such men we call religious, but they have no thought about God. They think about their place of worship, their Sunday, their books, but nothing about God. And he who does not respect God, pray to God, love God, is an ungodly man with all his external religion, however good that may be. Labor to teach the child always to have an eye to God. Write on his brow, Thou God seest me. Stamp on his books, Thou God seest me. Beseech him to recollect that within the encircling arms of God he evermore doth dwell. That the arms of Jehovah encompassed him around while his every act and thought is under the eye of God. No Sunday school teacher discharges his duty unless he constantly lays stress upon the fact that there is a God who notices everything. Oh, that we were more godly ourselves, that we talked more of godliness, and that we loved it better. The third lesson is the evil of sin. If the child does not learn that, he will never learn the way to heaven. None of us ever knew what a Savior Christ was till we knew what an evil thing sin was. If the Holy Ghost does not teach us the exceeding sinfulness of sin, we shall never know a blessedness of salvation. Let us ask His grace, then, when we teach, that we may evermore be able to lay stress upon the abominable nature of sin. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil. To cut out the remembrance of them from the face of the earth, don't spare your child. Let him know what sin leads to. Don't, like some people, be afraid of speaking consequences of sin plainly and broadly. I have heard of a father, one of whose sons a very ungodly young man, was taken off in a very sudden manner. He did not, as some would do, say to his family, We hope your brother has gone to heaven. No, but overcoming his natural feelings, he was enabled by divine grace to assemble his children and say, My sons and daughters, your brother is dead. I fear he is in hell. You knew his life and conduct. You saw how he behaved. God snatched him away. Then he solemnly warned them of the place to which he believed and almost knew he was gone, begging them to shun it. And then he was the means of bringing them to serious thought. But had he acted as some would have done with tenderness of heart, but not with honesty of purpose, he and said he hoped his son had gone to heaven. What would the others have said? If he has gone to heaven, there is no need for us to fear. We may live as we like. No, no. I hold it is not unchristian to say of some men that they are gone into hell, when we have seen that their lives have been hellish lives. But it is said, can you judge your fellow creatures? No, but I can know them by their fruits. I do not judge them or condemn them. They judge themselves. I have seen their sins go beforehand to judgment, and I do not doubt that they shall follow after. But may they not be saved at the eleventh hour? I do not know that they may. I have heard of one who was, but I do not know that there ever was another, and I cannot tell that there ever will be. Be honest, then, with your children, and teach them, by the help of God, that evil shall slay the wicked. But you will not have done half enough unless you teach carefully the fourth point, the absolute necessity of a change of heart. Oh, may God enable us to keep this constantly before the minds of the taught, that there must be a broken heart and a contrite spirit, that good works will be of no avail unless there be a new nature that the most arduous duties and the most earnest prayers will all be nothing unless there be a true and thorough repentance for sin and an entire forsaking of it through the mercy of God. Ah, be you sure of whatever you leave out that you tell them of the three R's, ruin, regeneration, and redemption. Tell them that they are ruined by the fall and that if they are redeemed by Christ they never can know it until they are regenerated by the Spirit. Keep before them these things, and then you will have the pleasing task of telling them the fifth place, the joy and blessedness of being a Christian. Well, I need not tell you how to talk about that, for if you know what it is to be a Christian, you will never be short of matter. May God bless your labors. He you will do it if you are instant in prayer, constant in supplication. For never yet did the earnest preacher or teacher labor in vain, and never yet has it been found that the bread cast upon the waters has been lost.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books